Welcome back to the present stage, Conversations with Theatre Writers. My name is Dan Rubens, and I'm a theatre critic, a composer, and an arts nonprofit leader. My guest today is Inua Ellams, the playwright and poet of The Half God of Rainfall, now running at New York Theatre Workshop off-Broadway through August 20th. Before we begin, I want to let you know that this episode does contain discussion of sexual assault, one of the central themes of Inua Ellams' play, The Half God of Rainfall. Inua Alams, welcome to the present stage. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start by um, asking you about the the epigraph for um, the published version of the text of The Half God of Rainfall. Um, well, you, you have four different epigraphs, but the first one is uh, a quote from Chuma Nuokolo. I am a poet, so I can empathize with minor gods. And I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that quote and and sort of why you selected it, what it means to you, and sort of how how uh, you could put it in the context of the play. Um, Chinwan Wokolo is a poet I met in Nigeria at the Lagos Poetry Festival. And he was a, he's a very tall guy. He looked like an Adonis of a man, of a poet, huge muscles, but it was soft-spoken and very articulate. And I remember him saying that line, I'm a poet, therefore I can empathize with small gods um, and it's, I don't know, there's something, I think John Keats said the inklings of poets are the forgotten adventures of God, or perhaps it was Elias Canetti, I don't know, there was a poet who said so, or maybe John Keats said poets are the midwives of reality. So there was this, um, there was the same, same notions that what we do as writers is we invent into darkness, into space, in the beginning was the word. And that is where the stories all come from. So I think I, I was thinking about that. And, and I think to be a poet requires some of that egoism, some of that bravado of a God to sit down and think, I shall go forth and construct the universe and you shall sit and walk amongst it and I shall destroy it on the seventh day if it doesn't work out, which is poets <laughs> that kind of throw the poem away and start inventing a new, a new universe. So I think that's what I was thinking about, yeah. So why the minor gods and not not the major the the large gods? Why the small gods? Because um, of all the literary arts, poetry is the most pathetic. It is the most, <laughs> it is the most ignored, and I'm not under any illusions about that at all. You know. So, but also I think the true work of being a poet requires deep humility to understand that a a poem is a is a machine with words, and for it to work. Um, you need writers willing to trust its mechanism. It, 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 it isn't entirely successful in and of itself. It requires a conversation between um, the readers to complete the equation of poetry. You know, um, that there's a poet who says, I know what I've given you, but not what you have received, which um, acknowledges the space between intention. Yeah and acceptance and understanding. So I think it requires humility. Therefore, you have to be a minor God, not an all-encompassing, all-powerful one. Yeah, I love that. I know what I've given you, but not what you have received. And I think that's a good transition into one of my bigger questions or a many multi-part question for this conversation, which is about sort of the journey that this text has taken for you and for all of its different audiences, which have included readers and listeners and and theater goers. Yeah. Um, so I'd love if you could just sort of talk about sort of the or, um, 
sort of the like provenance of the play that we're seeing at New York Theater Workshop, um, which um, has appeared in so many sort of different guises already, um, mm. could sort of take us back to sort of how it began and sort of how you envisioned it and then how it's grown. Um, I have a long poem called, well, not, not too long, called um, Of All the Boys of Platy Private School. It's about, I don't know, two or three pages long. And it's about a group of knuckleheads that I schooled with in Nigeria in a, in a, in, in a private school. And um, um, one of them had this, actually, no, hmm, well, there was a platy, yeah. And one of them had this terrible, terrible um, bad habit of playing with his own saliva where he let it drip from his mouth till it almost touched the ground and suck it back up or spit it high into the sky to catch it in his own mouth. And in this poem, I described him as the half god of rainfall because he was playing with his own saliva. And a poet's tutor of mine in 2011 read that poem and really circled that image, saying he really, really liked it. And, um, and, that, and then it stuck me as a potential for something. At that time, I'd spent years playing basketball. I'm still terrible at it. And I wanted to invent a character who could do all the things that I never could. And in basketball, if you can shoot well, you're said to be able to make it rain. So suddenly I, I thought about this, this, this rain man who played basketball, who had superhuman ability. And um, because um, of that, I Googled who which godfather could bestow him powers and instantly went to Zeus. And then in researching Zeus as a father figure, I discovered that he was a sexual predator and um, decided to try and do both of the same story to discuss this kid who was loosely based on myself who could do all the things I could never do on the courts, but had an abusive father. And in doing so, the story really began to grow and change and deepen. And um, yeah, and that's how it came. It was commissioned. Um, by a theatre in London and a production company called Fuel, Fuel and the Kiln Theatre. At the time, it was called The Tricycle, was rebranded The Kiln. And when The Kiln opened, um, The Half God of Rainfall was the very first production there. And in that guise, it was this epic poem written in the style of which um, Dante wrote The Divine Comedy, um, which, which is three-line verse structure. Um, but... I did, I, I elongated the lines. I think in his form, um, his lines were 10 syllables long. Mine are 12 syllables long. It's called a tetrametrical herzerima. And, and that allowed me space to play with internal rhyme schemes, borrowed, he, borrowed heavily a lot from hip hop tradition and, and, it, and allowed me to sound conversational whilst adhering to the strict rhyming structure. Um, either way, the play opened there with a cast of two and initially it was supposed to be a cast of one, foolishly enough, just me sat in a chair telling this epic story. But in the rehearsal room, we experimented with another voice, um, a female actor who was so skilled. I thought, okay, we need an equally skilled male performer. And from that, it became a two-hander. And the production in London was really good. Um, and it was, it was a lot of heavy lifting for cast of two. And as I saw, as I saw the production, I kept on thinking, I'm asking a lot from the audience to imagine all of those worlds of, of maybe over 30 characters played by a cast of two. And it just kept on thinking this would be great with um with a larger body, number of bodies on stage. Um, in the 
I think in the week the play opened, the book came out as well. And then I recorded it as an audio book performed by myself. So the audience could read the text as an epic poem. They could listen to the story with my voice. They could come and see it on stage. And um, this New York theater production is that seven-hander interpretation of the play. But the play could be done by a cast of 15, um, by a cast of 30, by cast of maybe just all five all black performers, seven all black performers, a cast of 300 women. There's so many ways in which the text can morph. And this yeah. is a interpretation of it. And I think that was sort of the the piece of the question that sort of um, took from that that quote that, that I know what I have given you, but not what you have received is the idea of that there could be all of these productions that through other interpretive lenses sort of bring to audiences a, a different community experience. Um, so I'm curious, just to, to clarify, was there ever a point at which you didn't imagine it as a theatrical text or it was always written to be performed? It was always written to be performed. Yeah. I wanted it to do both though, to work on the page, but also for it to be performed, to be, yeah. to be told like a story in the old oral traditions of the Greeks, but also West Africa, Nigeria, Yoruba, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And I, so I saw the play two nights ago and then last night I listened to the audiobook while reading the, the book. Oh, wow. um, and so it was, and, and they really were sort of quite different experiences. Um, so I'm curious for you having a re recorded the audiobook after that production or as that production was taking place um, in London, sort of what have been sort of the different experiences of having it sort of live within your own voice and then having here in New York, seven different actors sort of uh, divert the text into all of these different streams. I haven't actually listened to my own performance of the text in quite some time. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. It's great. I recommend, I recommend it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, well, I, I think when I first heard it with the cast of seven was when I realized did that when I, I guess, rediscovered like the dynamics of the story, the scale, the potential scale of it. And um, and I have such a talented cast here in the New York yeah. Theatre Workshop. They really own those characters, they make it themselves, they make it funny, they make it sexy, they make it horrific, they make it violent, they make it joyous. Um, it's 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 a revelation each time, actually, with each performance. Yeah. Um I talked to a lot of playwrights about sort of the physical life of the play on paper, but obviously this case is sort of special because there is this other sort of on paper life that the text yeah. is separate from the from the staging. So I'm curious sort of how you would describe the text. Um, it feels sort of to me like something that can kind of shape shift like some of the gods that you're depicting, depending on sort of who's in front of it or, or what it's meaning to do in different moments. So do you sort of see the text as a as a play or as a poem or just as as language that can sort of mold in different contexts? Um, I see it as, as, a, as a poem that can mold in different contexts, you know. Um, I'm currently talking um, with the director about the potential um, 18 cast version of this, wow. which, which is exciting. Um, I haven't figured out who the characters will be, but that will be exciting. And it, it, it will be, yeah. I don't think I could prescribe the, the, you know, the characters even. I think I'll be told these are the performers. How can we bend the text to yeah. see? So that is really exciting for me. Um, so all the potential configurations, I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited by. Yeah.
So I'd love to learn more about sort of in adapting the text for these seven performers, what that process was like. Was that collaborative? Was that you alone? Did that happen and evolve in yeah. the rehearsal room? Um, when I was workshopping it with Tabi Magar, the director, um, I sat down and I, I sort of just did it in front of her, just allocating text here and there. And I'd raise some questions, she'd answer, and based on answers, I'd tweak some things. And we sort of knew that 75%, maybe 80 of it was cast in stone, but knew that within the rehearsal process, we would reappropriate lines. So so um, that's exactly what happened over the last six or seven weeks where because of dramaturgical um, um, direction or dramaturgical situations or the blocking on stage, someone couldn't get somewhere to say something, therefore we'd have to give it to this person right. and deepen and reveal something in really interesting ways. So the rehearsal process were, were fluid, sometimes with Tabi asking if you could take this here, do this here, or some of the cast members saying, it's better if I say this because that might mean that to this person. So it was collaborative in that sense. I didn't create new material, but the appropriation, the appropriation is the wrong word. The allocation of lines changed and deepened the text in ways that I couldn't have seen yeah. sat in the room on my own. Yeah, and just to sort of describe what you're describing to listeners who haven't seen the play yet, um, there's sort of a mix of, there are sort of dialogue moments in the text, but a lot of the text is narration or commentary that sort of could, could be spoken by anyone. And, yeah. and sort of as you're describing sort of the significance ascribed to different performers taking on those yeah, lines. Exactly. Um, there's a moment, for example, that I was struck by where uh, like there's like a pair of newscasters who take on. Uh, <laughs> and I was and, and I was curious sort of when how those characters emerged and whether that was sort of obvious to you or or where that came from, since it, it might not um, be sort of inferred from the from the text itself. Yeah, I think those came from um in the UK production between myself and the director, we thought that'd be really great spin yeah. on, on that section. And um and, and it just works. The first time I saw it, I fell apart, I just fell apart laughing. Yeah. <laughs> and then have that was done with one newscaster. Here it's done with two, so it just further deepens um the the interpretation of that part of the story to an American audience. But you know, there are so many other different configurations of of doing this where we where in potential future productions we choose who there's there's a version in which the entire play is narrated by newscasters you know there's a version in which um the storyteller is a figure who owns a basketball franchise and is seen through his eyes there's a version in which is you know so i i like all of those potential yeah. collaborations but to answer your question specifically those came for the previous production and it just worked beautifully do you feel like you would want to be involved in sort of every reiteration or reimagining or would if, if someone reached out to you and said i i have a vision to do it with like 17 people and yeah. i want to take a crack at dividing that up would you would you be open yeah. to sort of other people doing the reallocation or or is that something that yeah definitely i would love to feed back into that if I have the time yeah. and space head, you know, but yeah, I'd love someone to take a crack at it and, and to explain why maybe I can feed in and help them deepen yeah. some of their decision-making processes. But yeah, I'd love someone else to take a crack and who they who they then give the text on what that means and who, and yeah, yeah. Um, and there is something sort of, to sort of connect it to the, the themes of the, of the play too, something sort of 
um in in sort of like reaching into to myth sort of like ritualistic or a, a, in sort of us in assigning the same text to like different communities or sort of matching the like ceremony of that you have assembled by the cast like to the to the lines yeah. um which feels like um sort of the right the right text to kind of do that kind of exploration with i'm curious yeah. if you can talk more about sort of what it has meant to you in this process to kind of create myth which also i feel like is kind of a a godlike uh, uh task i guess um to sort of build your own myth um that really kind of holds up structurally sort of along alongside myths that we're familiar with from different cultures um that's a great question well i grew up in a multi-faith household when i was a kid um, I, used, I used to go to the mosque and the church. My father was a Muslim, my mother was a Christian. And because of having a multi-faith belief system and appreciating both faiths and some of the stories that I read, I never approached sacred text as, um, as, sac uh, as sacred text. You know, I used to read the Bible um, under my duvet with the torchlight as if it was a novel. Yeah. <laughs> it was incredible. So so not taking holy books with such reverence meant that when I was reading about Zeus and Hercules and Perseus, etc., I was sort of reading them on par with each other. Then I began to read about Buddhist faith, about, about Buddha, about Zen philosophy and, and, and similar holy texts. And they all kind of sat in the same cloud of magic with me. And then when I discovered the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I thought, oh my God, there's such similarities between all, you know. Yeah. So they began to shift and bend in interesting ways. And um, because I never took those gods as sacred, I thought I could write my own stories that could sit amongst them. So, you know, the inklings of poets are the forgotten adventures of God. I'm a poet, therefore I can empathize with minor gods. All of those things were in the kindling. And and because of that, I thought, how do I create a new myth? I'm a third culture kid. I'm a cult, I'm of cultural hybridity. I was born in Nigeria. My father and my mother were from two different um, nation tribes in Nigeria. My belief system was pluralistic. Um, I left Nigeria, moved to England, then moved to Ireland. So I just kept on understanding the similarities between cultures more so than the differences. And therefore, when it came to writing, I, I, I just felt like I could do those. How do I represent aspect of this here? So I fell in love with the Greeks, but also rediscovered the Orishas, which are the Nigeria's equivalents to the Olympians. I wanted to create stories that celebrated both, that put them um, in conflict, sometimes in harmony, sometimes with each other. And that's when the half of rainfall um, began to grow. And there's this kind of amazing scene where Shango, the the thunder god, the Yoruba thunder god is is flying to Olympus and and sort of each of the thunder gods from all the pantheons that he's like flying <laughs> flying by show up in cameos. Um, yeah. <laughs> kind of feel like a cinematic sort of cameo moment where you're like, oh, there, <laughs> there's this other culture's thunder god yeah. um, um so uh really kind of a rich sort of bringing all of those mythologies together yeah. um i'm curious um in in tabi magar's staging what sort of surprised you the most or um excited you the most uh in sort of what she discovered oh, tabi was such such a magical person with such vision and insight you know um when we first 
started talking about this. She said, you know, you know, there's a way in which we can do this with two chairs and a torchlight because the storytelling piece, or there's a way we can do this with full, you know, Disney budgets. We couldn't get Disney money, but she just meant in terms of the scale of storytelling. So we tried to do something that did both, that felt like naked theater, naked theatric storytelling, and this is a storytelling piece, but also considering what um, projection yeah. might lead to understanding things, what sound design could do. So, so that's that was her um, her take on this, and I think it works really remarkably. You know that she could create such big big imagery, but as, as absolutely strip it back to so just to just someone standing and telling you what's happening. You know. And it, it it shifts and dies, it expands and contracts beautifully. Um, Madupe has this, who's Demi, that your main character's mother has this incredibly powerful monologue about the trauma she experiences after being raped by Zeus. She says, he crumbled me down to this, which I thought was a really evocative line, both hearing it on stage and then listening to the audiobook. Um, so I, I'd love to learn more about sort of what, you, you spoke already about sort of discovering the sort of uh, history of Zeus through the myth and, and trying to tell that story as well. Um, but I'd love to learn more about sort of what, uh, it, what it was like to sort of weave that uh, narrative into throughout the myth. And there sort of is this kind of tonal shift in the piece. Um, yeah. Modupe kind of becomes a central figure and, sort of her uh her justice for all for all of the women yeah. that Zeus has harmed becomes kind of focal. Um so I'm curious how you kind of navigated those shifts and well, I think once I just once I decided to to head on discuss, dramatize and write about Zeus's um sexual crimes, I then needed to do research about the scale of um, sexual violence. And um, I think the first thing was deep humility and embarrassment that I did not know how prevalent it was where my own male privilege had blinkered me, had blinded me from, from the truth. And research meant talking to my sisters, talking to my female best friends, um, past lovers, my aunties, um, reading books, um, blogs, um testimonials from survivors from victims and then trying to figure out what what those would sound like coming from an african woman's mouth um who was of my own creation so it was a sobering experience and a painful one i think um that was the last part of the story that i wrote and it was the hardest part because i'm a, i'm a for better or for worse, I'm a deeply empathetic, um, empathetic person, um, which means that when I write, I take on board the dark energies of my character, um, of my characters. And that's what happened in that period. That's why I was scared to write it uh, and why um, it, took, it took so long to do so. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah, it was, and you know, in order to, to do, justice to that. I interviewed friends of mine who were victims, but who had forgave their victimizers, you know, and tried to understand what allowed them 
such humanity or such understanding to forgive and also those who didn't forgive and could never forgive why and all of that got me got me to a place where I figured out what to do with Zeus in the story so it took years of reading of understanding to figure out all of those deeply intellectual but also emotional and humane and humanist responses to such a topic and then have to stitch it into this narrative about mythology and basketball. Yeah, and I think it's kind of extraordinary how you not only sort of create your own myth, but sort of reconcile with the history of myth or what myth has been and, and what we've sort of taken for granted and not yeah. sort of challenged or 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 tried to to fully face in the myths that we've celebrated or uh, sort of accept or teach. Um, yeah. and I, since you mentioned basketball, I wanted to ask you as well, of sort of the, uh, one of my favorite pieces of the player, uh, is sort of the, uh, the, the list of all of the basketball players and their, their godly ancestors and where yeah. they've derived their powers from. So I'm curious to know where, where that idea came from. Um, yeah, if you could share more um... about that aspect. I don't remember where where the idea came from. Actually, it was a gift from the poetry gods. I don't. <laughs> as soon as it settled with me, I began by, I don't know, reading lots of blogs about who the greatest basketball players were from from the '90s, which is the era in which I grew up. Um, you know, as an avid fan, and then likening their skill sets to the gods. And because I had all of that history of learning about. Um, you know, belief systems from across the world. It was not an easy, it was not a difficult thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> it was matching the powers to the ballers. And um, and I think it's, it's one of the most joyous parts in the play because I think the audience understand what I'm doing and it comes yeah. both as a surprise, but a deep appreciation of basketball nerddom, but also um, mythological nerddom and, and, and matching them, you know, it's just, it's just fun. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious, thinking about the audience here in New York Theatre Workshop, you uh, there's a, there's a little bit of thematic material in the play around sort of the American basketball world being idolized. Um, <laughs> sort of, have you found that American audiences are responding differently to the play than British audiences? Or... Oh, absolutely! Basketball is more or less ignored in Britain. Yeah, I think um, the lead um, female actor in the play in London thought that I'd invented all the basketballers <laughs> until yeah. late night she began to just type the names into Google and then came back the following day into the rehearsal room with her mind completely blown. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we um, celebrated the NBA and its yeah. stars are in, in Britain, you know, in, in the larger um, artistic um or theatric going audiences. Amongst the basketball community in London, of course, everyone adores the NBA, but they're a very small fraction. Yeah. They intersect with the theater audiences and even, you know, smaller yeah. fraction. But um, that was not the case. As soon as they met an American audience, they got it. Yeah, well, I know there was that New York Times article last week that was sort of uh, covering all of the, the basketball related right. theater that's yeah. been <laughs> around lately. Um, I think I wanted to to end by asking you about um, the last line of the play. Modupe says, "Play with love, play with pain." Um, talking about basketball, but um, 
also curious sort of that juxtaposition sort of word playing on the word play idea of like yeah. a theatrical play um sort of what um what it means to you to sort of create uh, a play or or put on a play um balancing those two uh mm. like elements um and how you might sort of connect that to your own sort of art making process um that's that's a very great question um Poetry is a, is a difficult um, game to play. It's a difficult endeavor. It's, it's, it is to pursue the imperceptible, to try and pin down the ocean sometimes. And the poet creates pressures for themselves under which they operate, they create rules for themselves, which they figure out how to break, when to break. It's an entirely mind-buggingly difficult um, undertaking. At the same time, there's nothing like it when you're gripped in the poem and you have all the possible um, permutations of language before you. And to choose a word and choose another to follow it um, is to stand on a beach and be asked to choose the most important grains of sand, you know, that way lies madness, but there's joy in the madness. There's, there, there's, there's a pleasure in it and there is a pain. Uh, and as a writer, I think that's why I'm drawn to writing poetry as difficult as it is. Like sometimes it takes me a year to write a single play, a single poem, and it's stuck in my head the whole year. And yeah. it's frustrating, you know, um, but, it is also the gesture of um of making theater. I say that because I started suffering from anxiety than lots of people who do. Sometimes it's more difficult, sometimes it's it's less. And 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 one one of the ways in which anxiety presents itself is the feeling of a loss of control. And when you are working in theater, which is all about collaboration, you have to let go. You have to trust in the actors, trust in the artistic collaborators, trust in the director. And you have to let go, which sometimes heightens anxiety, at least in my case, it's been like that. So it's been also as much as joyous as it had been with my cast, who I completely in love with, it has also been a painful process waiting for them to arrive at a shared vision and then encourage them towards it and then to trust that it will all build it when the spotlight comes on and the audience is before them. And then the audience changes and respond and shift and change each night. So the gesture is a painful one, but a loving one as well, you know? And I, and I never really understood that until this production where it's a poem which I've performed myself. So it seems stitched with my very, Fab, with the very fabric of myself as a performer, as a writer, but also democratizing it to the audience and, and to the actors and trusting in them. So it's been a very involving process. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that response and thank you for the, the text and, and thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you um, very much. It's been much. wonderful to speak to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The Present Stage Conversations with Theatre Writers streams Fridays wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review, a five-star rating. Please follow us on Instagram at The Present Stage. And most importantly, share this episode with a friend.
Thanks so much for listening to the present stage. We'll see you next time.